0: Who you are defines how you build. This is the Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, brought to you by Stanford eCorner. On this episode, we're joined by Laura Gomez, founder and CEO of Atypica, an AI platform that seeks to remove bias from the hiring process through applicant tracking, recruitment, and visual diversity dashboards. Laura is a founding member of Project Include, A nonprofit working to accelerate diversity inclusion in the tech industry. Here's Laura. Um, First, I want to talk about my path to entrepreneurship. Um, When I was an undergrad at Berkeley, (laughs) I wasn't really uh, thinking that I could ever be a founder. I didn't see founders like me. I didn't hear about entrepreneurship. Although entrepreneurship has been very key in almost my family. My mom is an entrepreneur. I'm a small business owner yet I didn't see myself to actually be on this side. Um, Other things I will share with you are my journey on building a Typica, being a Latina founder, today's uh, Latina Equal Pay Day. And Latinas only make 50 cents per the $1 that men do. Um, And so we really, and we're severely underfunded as well, not only in Silicon Valley, but across all the tech and entrepreneurship uh, uh, ecosystems around the world. So what is Atypica? We basically power analytics for teams to understand really how they're doing on diversity. Um, We do things outside of self-reporting because not everyone will self-report, I'll go into it, but we really believe that this is the most key and pressing business issue out there. Um, Inclusion, belonging, diversity, employee activism, um, ethical tech, all of those things I will touch upon during my chat today and obviously I will leave some time at the end so that we if you have any q a uh, you'd be more than happy to ask me some questions actually this is really funny i will start here i typically was born on this campus (laughs) ironically (laughs) exactly five years ago i was asked uh, by usa today to do a closed event at stanford law uh, to talk about this pressing issue of diversity and inclusion with leaders of Facebook and Google, VPs of diversity and inclusion, and the Reverend Jesse Jackson, um, Stanford Law Professor Richard Thompson, um, to come and speak on this issue. Um, A background about me, and I'll stay here, I usually do have a slide. I grew up, I am an immigrant, um, and I grew up in Redwood City, so I, well, I was a child, I tell people that my culture and my birthplace is in Mexico, but my hometown is Redwood City. I live three blocks away from your mom. When I was probably your age, I didn't think that I would ever live near my mom in my 30s, but here I am. Um, and Redwood City is my home. I grew up there before uh, a lot of the changes that you're seeing in, um, around the Bay Area. Um, I tell people that I knew uh, Mountain View before there was a Google, and that the only reason I would go there to go. S- to Shoreline to go see the Fugees uh, play a concert. Um, it's important for me to acknowledge that even as a child uh, um, that grew up in the Bay Area, I never saw myself being an entrepreneur. My mom was a house cleaner and was also uh, a nanny to a lot of tech executives during the 90s. Um, yet I didn't think that I could be part of that ecosystem, but here I am and I'm very feeling very uh, grateful and fortunate, but also I know that I have fought a long way to come here. I was also, I cannot de-emphasize that, although there's certain uh, identities to my intersectional uh, existence, I was also an undocumented child, so everything that um, I embody and I'm actually at is because I grew up in Silicon Valley. Um, Whether it was a curse or a blessing, I grew up here. I worked here in high school, actually. I worked here at Stanford. The reason I didn't end up coming here is because I didn't want my mom to show up with a pot of beans (laughs) at the dorm, and I thought, hey, let me look at other ways that I could um, be near her but still um, uh, work. I had my first internship at uh, at the age of 17 before I started uh, college at Hewlett Packard, right on Page Mill Road. And I didn't see, again, no one that looked at me. And once I started my first intro to engineering class, um, it was right away that I decided I didn't want to be in this industry. Ironically, uh, because of how I grew up here, here I am. I also think this, is, this picture is really important because I believe I'm the only founder that had their mother, their future investors, future clients, their friends be present when I spoke about why. Um, I looked at Facebook, I said you have the largest facial recognition da- uh, data set in the world with the best, and probably brilliant data scientists. Why are you saying that you can't get more women into your engineering roles or you can't find um, more people of color, either brown or black, Um, people to intern at your company. And the same for Google. I held them accountable that they had this talent, but they weren't really tapping it into actually creating uh, more inclusive workplaces. Um, They didn't answer me, so I said, okay, well, I was supposed to travel around the world, um, and I decided to postpone my travels to fund this company. Uh, I was just explaining to my friend two weeks ago that This has been my longest job in tech, five years and counting. Um, But it is when you're a founder or an entrepreneur, you're passionate enough, you keep going. Um, I've worked on a lot of tech companies. Uh, Another thing that is very interesting to me has been that I founded an enterprise startup. Even though most of my my career has been in consumer web. Uh, But also, I sit on a lot of the boards that you probably hear of, like uh, Anita Borg on the Diversity Council, the Women of Color Council. They put on Grace Hopper. On Code.org, I believe I just got an email for their um, annual um, dinner. So for me, it's really important not to just talk about it, build a company around it, but actually do something and contribute back. (coughs) Um, Why this matters to me and to everybody. Everything here is changing, Um, whether it's a demographic. I was just reading about an app built by women house cleaners in New York for themselves where they actually, uh, it's part of the gig economy, they're actually, um, they deploy all of their apps to make sure that there's uh, livable wages to all the house, uh, to all the uh, sort of domestic or house cleaners in New York. So. They will, people will use technology to unionize to really make sure that they live in in a world that is just and and fair. More women are entering the workforce. As we all know, Um, 10 years ago, I wouldn't have imagined a room like this. Um, I was also, wouldn't have imagined like the changes I haven't made by all of the women that have contributed. Um, Some of them alumni over here, but otherwise um, a lot of women that have paved the way so that everybody feels that they have a fair chance. And also we have to think about all of those different uh, paths. Where I find really interesting is that a lot of my clients understand it, but it 's not necessarily uh, a way to think it's good it 's ethical we should invest in diversity and inclusion it 's a business imperative um, Four hundred billion dollars are lost in PR nightmares I mean how many times do you hear about Someone walked, a famous rapper walked into Sephora and was discriminated against or Beyonce walked into Reebok meeting and there weren't any people of color so she walked out. So a lot of it is related to PR but employee attrition, um, dissatisfied shareholders. Um, We see all of the sort of movements that happened a couple years ago by women in tech are still affecting companies that have gone public and they're still not doing well that their culture is not, um, has not really healed from those things. So we really, I do believe that this is not necessarily, it feels good that this is a imp- business imperative for the future. A lot of this data is fragmented, anecdotal and broken. Everybody will just say, hey, I ran a report. I feel like this is enough. And we tell people that's not enough if you're centralizing all your other data. Um, the number one field right now in uh, sort of in data science within a business organization is actually people analytics. Um, 70% of all companies uh, now have people analytics. Where I started at Tipica five years ago, it was less than 5%. So they're looking at how people are being paid, what the benefits are, the engagement, how they're being hired, who's being hired. Um, so people analytics is something that is very, very profitable and now is being used. Um, that being said, who's building these tools? And so we have to ask those ourselves that. And with Atypica, that's what we're aiming to do. Um, I also believe that the future of the workforce is not just on race and gender or any other, or age. It is a non-binary workforce. How are we adapting to how people identify themselves or don't identify themselves? I spoke here at a Forbes CIO summit where CIOs of like corporations, both financial and media companies like Sony Pictures heard me speak time and time again that a CIO's role is to actually gather more information around their people. They're going to, the CIO's role 10 years ago was probably about information and IT, but in the future it may be around what, what information and what data are you gathering for your own workforce. The market is quite big, I did, this didn't go. Uh, the market is quite big. If people don't know, like visual analytics, I say it's queen, because <laughs> I'm a big feminist, but um, they, uh, they are all, this is where it is. Tableau was acquired by, uh, Salesforce for, I believe, uh, 18 billion earlier this year, and look for, by Google. So a lot of data, data and visualizations are happening right now um, are around how to make business, uh, businesses adapt to what is needed from their consumers to the key performance metrics, any of that stuff. Um, for me, I just focus on people. Um, as I said, people analytics is growing. I give the stats because I think it's important to know that this may change by the time you, some of you graduate or some of you are in the workforce midway through your career. It could be three times as that. This didn't exist when I started at Tipica. Imagine me being a founder, going up Sand Hill Road or talking to investors, saying, "I want to build a platform based on in- inclusive, ethical, and responsible AI, diversity, and analytics." This was five years ago. Um, they thought we don't get what you're building Um, but those are the things that we we have to adapt really quickly and we have to be uh, part of the conversation especially women especially women of color Um, I put this picture I did not put the logos of this man but as you can see um, I have received about 3.8 million dollars in funding i raised the largest uh, seed round in the Silicon uh, in the history of Silicon Valley um, by a a solo Latina founder Uh, I have not raised more, like I have raised about the same in the five years that Tipica has been around, um, in the space where I'm at, um, and I know Sarah spoke here. At also, she works in HR tech and the recruiting platform we integrate with her product. Um, but in the space that we're at, I have seen men um, in the past year receive more than three hundred million dollars in funding. I've received one point four percent of that. Even though I've been in the market now, a lot of these tools are saying they're building inclusion into their tools, into how employees are happy or all this stuff. But it's really important to think that like the bandwagon is there, that intensity needs to be there. Does it hurt? Yes. Being a female founder is not easy, especially when a lot of other founders are talking about inclusion and putting it into their own tools and raising $70, 80000000 million off it. Uh, But we're the only ones that are focused on this. I tell people you can hire a lot of uh, people, analysts, and this might be a project for them, but for us, it's not a project. This is our livelihood, and this is what we are very passionate about. What is Atypica? So <clears throat> Atypica, we have a platform. Um, as you can tell, I'm a product manager because I built three products. I built an API, um, the diversity intelligence, which is proprietary, and also how to uh, mitigate the biases um, that are in, uh, in recruiting. I've started out with a typical thinking like it's the recruiters. They need to, they have biases. And we realize that data shows that it's not the recruiters, that there's different ways to understand where biases come from. But you first need to give them the data. Um, The diverse intelligence was actually something that leaders asked me. I want to see reports based upon how people are moving throughout the funnel. Um, We want to see who came in. Did this event really pay off? And so we built that as well. And then one of our clients, Netflix, um, and I believe, Decided that hey, we already we don't need a different product. Can you build an API so that we can just use your technology and layer it on internally in our dashboards? So we did. Um, how are we different? Uh, and this can be. And you can ask me how is this ethical not ethical? What are the, some of the legal? Uh, so we actually I decided that uh, a lot of uh, at, in recruiting you'll see what is your race or ethnicity or your gender. And that's the EEOC, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission report. That is voluntary, you don't have to answer it. Some people answer it, other people don't. Um, Some people answer one aspect of their identity. I may answer that, hey, I'm Latina, but I may not answer that I'm a woman. Um, It depends, but there's a lot of data gap. But people are making goals around this, so 30%. If you fill out 30% at the top of the funnel, then 90% then 70% of that, like you don't know and you're making goals or the business are making goals. Um, I also decided I, I know exactly how automation and recommendation systems work and what aspects of your identity are being taken, obviously data and privacy, we were just talking to the professor and I on the importance of data and privacy. Um, so how I typically ended up getting a 96% accuracy rate on gender. Um, our training set is very diverse. Um, we take government data, everything from the uh, EOC to census. So it's really important for 2020. I am going to volunteer for the census as well. Census location, uh, universities, uh, and the university demographics. So Stanford probably looked very different 10 years ago than it does it will look like in 2020. Um, and then we learn from it. We use our own uh, ML models to actually uh, to actually think, OK, if someone's name Laura, and their last name is Gomez, most likely will be Latina, um, and A in La- Latina names usually end with being attributed to females. But in, uh, in Southeast uh, Asian, um, like persona is one of our visiting scholars, and he is Indian. So how do we make sure our models that are here are ethical, they're very uh, localized and, they're, and they're able to, we're able to validate them? We do the same with race. I got my master's in the social construction of race so when people say, can you internalize this to the UK? Uh, we cannot, because then we, we need to look at census data uh, in the UK, we need to look at what people identify as, and that is very nuanced, so we don't do that. We've done this here based upon what my knowledge is of the racial component um, of the United States and how people are self-identifying. So yes, we are 96% accurate in inferring uh, gender and 91% up to 91% on top of the funnel. Uh, a lot of people think that it's based just on names, that's the foundation, but that's only about 67% accurate. The rest, we've really worked on in over the past five years. Here are some roles that you can see that we look at it on the data science, on how long it takes to hire for tech roles and how many days, and what this analysis was early on. You see some trends, and then you see some differences that are coming across on whether it's the market that people take more time, to hire or le- le- uh, less. So we do this type of analysis. If you go to our blog, we just did one on referrals, and it was very interesting. Women did really well in smaller teams when they were referred to by anyone, but as, lo- as, as soon as they were referred into a larger organization, they actually did not do well <laughs> into tech. So we did a lot on referrals. We did referrals on, um, on uh black and brown candidates and how they get into the funnel. And then we also did, as I said, on um, what we called the bamboo doorway. We saw that uh, Asians in general had a harder time being hired um, through the referral system. And we did the same for operations for gender. And so we look at all of this information. For us, visualizations are really important. That's the way we say, yes, that data is, you can have data driven, but you have to have data purposeful. My goal and vision really is in general with Atypica is to foster growth and innovation through DEA. What's DEI? Diversity, equity, and inclusion. So that, that to become a brand entrusted uh, for attraction, for attracting talent and retaining it, but also to protect businesses from liabilities. Um, we ha- I do have, uh, I talk to many lawyers who ask me, is this legal? And I say yes, because we don't say, we don't pinpoint to specific people, we use aggregate information, like tens of thousands, not millions of applicants. Another, my first angel investor was an employment lawyer. Um, you will see time and time again, I think LinkedIn just published something yesterday or the day before, um, that a lot of these tools that are recommending applicants or are recommending uh, candidates, they will be audited in a court one day, because who built this recommendation systems? For example, in aid. Some people, like myself, when I got into the workforce, maybe my major didn't uh, exist, or now it's the equivalent to something else, right? Maybe statistics now. It is data science. Uh, but if the recommendation system says that we're only looking for data scientists, um, it's actually been ageist. So a lot of the tools in our space is are actually going to, and you see this time again, even in consumer, you see recommendation systems. Um, I spoke at Women in the World, one of the largest um, conferences, Oprah (laughs) opened the stage and then I was on that stage the next day, that was really amazing. Uh, But we talked about automation and artificial intelligence is going to disproportionately affect women, especially women of color around the world, not just in the United States because those are the ones that are manual. Um, It will also think about ethics, um, facial recognition for black women. Obviously we've seen the studies time and time again. Um, and then finally, responsibility. Even if my AI, even if my drone is a responsible AI tool, what if someone gets, hands in, uh, it gets in the hands of um, the wrong people? I just read, I know the founder and CEO of Ring, Jamie, I met him once, but I just read that Ring, that the police can actually ask if anything happens, a crime occurs within two block radius, uh, the police can actually keep that information from ring uh, for 45 days, even if you had nothing to do or your home had nothing to do with the crime that was committed. So discussing these implications of access to data, privacy, artificial intelligence, is really important to understand the people cost and liabilities. I will end there, but I want to just take a step back and put my email here in case anyone doesn't want to go into the Q&A. For me, um, I want to talk, I spoke a lot about my product, about my company, about the space that I'm in. I wanna speak really quickly, and I don't like having as many slides there because you can never really uh, understand what it is to be a founder nowadays. Um, It is hard. Everybody's always talking about the recession's coming. That being said, I feel it's the greatest equalizer as it relates to building something out of sheer passion. I never saw myself on the stage, I never saw myself as a founder, but my friend, uh, he built this very awesome oven, smart oven, and what he wants is people eating healthier and, and making sure that food is, doesn't go to waste. And so when we go through, and he is, does not anything look like me or is, F, uh, or is within the circle of like what my activism is, But we're all founders. We all started building for some reason something that we wanted. We went through fundraising process. We went through entrepreneurship for whatever reason. I always like to tell this story. Mine has a lot of purpose because I'm very passionate about it, but everybody has passion even when you don't know or you read. Um, There might be some founders out there like, I just solved a business problem and that's okay too. But I remember I talked to this entrepreneur from South America one time, and he was really passionate about having access to air fresheners that he can control remotely, (laughs) and I was like, okay, but we talked, and I realized that this was based upon some sensitivities that his wife had, things that he really wants, that smell is actually really important when you go, uh, go into your home after work, and he did a lot of studies on that, but he was so passionate about it. And so I honestly do believe that entrepreneurship is something that I hope anyone here, whether you, you are, uh, you don't, may not become an entrepreneur. I, beca- I started um, working at startups right after college, so I've always been part of smaller startups that grew. When I was at Twitter, uh, there were less than 50 employees. I was the first Latina there, um, and then I ended up heading localization and left when there were almost 2,500 people. So... But I saw what entrepreneurship was through all these early experiences. And so for me, it's really important to talk about importance and just how amazing it is. Right before I came here, I looked on my phone, and I probably got one, like if not, I can't divulge a lot, but if not, one of the most important emails of my career as a founder and for my team and for my investors. Um, I also chose wisely my investors. They're very, and my board members, all entrepreneurs will be faced with taking the money from certain people that you may not agree with um, or backgrounds or firms that didn't do so well on being respectful or are not as supportive. Uh, but I really thought long and hard. I turned, down some, I turned down money from people that I just couldn't really imagine to be in my board. So those are some of the learnings that I had. Um, but I don't take away that uh, it is sad to me that Cecilia Corral, who was actually under undergrad here, uh, and she went through YC, that she had to make her own list of how many Latinas have gone over $1 million in funding. And so far we have 25 that we found across the United States. And that statistics should not um, keep the same. So definitely uh, the struggles there, the, but we all have the solidarity of whether we built something out of passion or we're we are the, in the same circle of who we are um, to come here. Uh, finally, to me, it, when people come, and I don't know who here is local, but when people come from, um, from other places to Silicon Valley, I explain to them why this is so important to me. My family still lives here. I am the face of like a lot of, you know, I was at Coupa Cafe and I invited the guy that made my coffee to come and hear me speak. Um, I said, but it will be online because it's really important that uh, the communities that, that serve us, the communities that I'm a part of are actually um, are seen. So they, I tell people that my nieces, Elena and Natalia, they can't be what they can't see. And so for me, it's important to speak at events like this. It's important to actually talk about the activism that I do, um, not only through being a founder and through the tools I'm building, but also through just sheer existence um, to be to uh, move forward, and so um, for that, I will leave it open. Um, there is about 20 minutes or 19 minutes for Q&A. Any questions that you may have, please feel free. There's a lot of questions, you can ask me anything. Go ahead. Uh, you showed a lot of graphs about race and gender, yeah. and you touched on ageism. Mm -hmm. You talk about the work you've done on that and how I mean in Silicon Valley there seems to be a definite bias Oh, The bias is there. So one of the things I did talk about was what we'd said if like someone graduated 20 years ago in statistics And now it's really just data science to be quite honest (laughs) But they have a degree that the machine learning so we did some of that we also have looked at um, We actually looked at something very interesting. We looked at uh, in the summary section where people say over 10 years of experience, just 10 years, but imagine if you're 21 or 22, you graduated, by the time you have t- 10 years of experience, you're gonna be 31, 32. That's not, that's actually quite young. <laughs> that's not even ageism, but we noticed that the drop off of calling them, with calling those I- individuals was really high. And then when we noticed uh, where people put, if even the length of the resume or where they put their education and uh, If they put like two or three more degrees, I have two, well I have technically like four because I did double undergrad and double masters, but if they listed more than degrees, like they would seem that they're too overqualified for them, it would be tied back to age. (laughs) So we've done that work. Um, It's really interesting to see uh, how we can really push forward that work. We're still a small startup, so definitely wanna talk about that. Another thing that we've discussed is Um, looking at uh, ways that where people's uh, zip codes are located because, you know, San Francisco, is mostly young people. (laughs) They say there's more dogs than kids in San Francisco. So there might be ageism in in locations. And so we're looking at all of that. On a kind of semi-related pronouns on resumes and social media and LinkedIn are a whole new thing. I didn't see this five years ago. So pronouns now on binary and non-binary folks are really coming uh, up. Project Include, uh, the nonprofit that Ellen Powell runs, um, actually did a a survey among startups. And 5% of all the tech workforce identifies as non-binary. So we're doing different types, definitely. I feel like the older I get, the more I'm very passionate about this. Um, I'll also talk about. looking at data points that are meaningful to the the workforce. So I explained this to a very, very powerful woman. I mean, she flies private jets with a very famous CEO. (laughs) And say, um, I was in a meeting with her and I say, as I get older, I still want my female counterparts to have access to, um, and my male counterparts, to have access to paternity leave, maternity leave, uh, fertility, um, thoughtfulness on what matters, on reproduction and like family. But as I get older, I may want a benefit on how to walk my mom through retirement. Or most women end up taking care of their mothers. And so, like, how can we support women as they're getting older in the workforce for their, um, with their parents? And so, those are all aspects that I think about on ageism. It's like that even the benefits sometimes are ageist towards not including where people are in the stage of their lives. I have a question about your So, when you are kind of out of college and you were at these companies as, as a fresh grant. How did you think through some of the ethical dilemmas or problems where you were either asked to do something you're uncomfortable doing or you don't really Did you have sort of a friend a, a group that you were able to talk with or how did you think? No. Can you uh, repeat the question? Yes. So I will repeat that question. So as I entered my career into tech after I graduated, how did I really think about the ethicals or the social uh, responsibilities of working at this, companies, and did I have a support system? Uh, That's an excellent question. I worked as a contractor, the little red badge, at YouTube when I started off there. They had just been acquired by Google, and then content moderators were like the most depressed people. And you can see the same now in other tools. Um, They would tell me some of the videos that they would see, and I would purposely not walk in that direction. And there were only 300 employees. I look back, and I look back about. I'm also part of this other. Like I don't have enough time, but I'm also part of this other uh, organization called Build Tech with Trust, where we saw radicalization online not being held accountable by the tech companies, uh, by the content that they're providing. Um, and so after the mass shootings um, on uh, around white uh, supremacy and radicalization, a bunch of women of color CEOs here in the uh, Bay Area, we came and we built what. Uh, build tech with trust as a coalition, and then we even uh, submitted questions to Congress when Mark Zuckerberg went there a couple weeks ago on the questions around the ethics. Um, Going back to your question, if I could go back, I would have taken more ethics uh, courses in in college and thinking about what I'm building to complement my more technical or my more uh, social degrees. Um, Then I worked at Twitter And the first time a dictator started tweeting on Twitter was Hugo Chavez, which is a dictator of Venezuela. And I was in charge of Twitter in Español. So I went to the general counsel there and I said, should we have a policy on how leaders or dictators should tweet on this platform (laughs) if it threatens the the citizens' lives or or like does... uh, But it was kinda like a passing thought. Do I wake up and think about it? Yes, especially given nowadays. So I do believe that I did not have that system and so maybe this is my way of atonement of working for all the tech companies um, to try to reverse a little bit. I think after the 2016 elections, one of my colleagues at Twitter tweeted out, what have we done? And I just remember that tweet and I was crying and then um, my partner worked early at Facebook, and so he was, uh, he has been, uh, he, yeah, he worked at, through the API at Facebook, so he knows everything that happened there on data and the Cambridge Analytic stuff. So um, I think we're all, everyone in this industry uh, is like really torn on how we can make a change and hold ourselves accountable. Um, I always tell people I have a love-hate relationship with, with tech, but I love the industry enough to want to change it and stick around for a while, so. Thanks for that question. Yes. How do you foresee including military veterans in your diversity count? Great. How do I foresee uh, including military veterans? I have. I was actually on uh, the board of uh, of uh, a veteran organization. I had to step away when once I started like building out the company, um, Operation Code, and we did uh, the study. The same study. But what we realized that veterans actually self-report themselves uh, very high that we don't need models to To include them into the process. What we need more is understanding transferable skills So we neutralize a taxonomy of skills among veterans to know like if you're a program manager in the Navy How does it translate into something similar so we neutralized that we didn't need to really fill in the gaps on on reporting i wish i had more funding and more and a larger team i would definitely have like little subsets of tackling age tackling uh veteran inclusion um also uh most likely uh you know lgbtqa and disabilities more into our product yes um the statistic that you shared um about Just there being only 25 Latinas who've been able to uh, raise that much funding is shocking. And what that made me wonder was, where did you find confidence in yourself to feel like you could do it? And um, how have you worked through moments where that was tested? (laughs) So I had a very high profile job, uh, mostly at Twitter, just very high profile. And so, and knowing a lot of the early employees there, ended up uh, as venture capitalist. Um, So I thought it would be easy for me. Little did I know, 2014, I was very idealistic. Um, It was, I didn't prepare myself. I didn't understand like cap tables. I didn't understand a lot of things. I read a lot, I'm a speed reader. Um, How did I I get the confidence? I don't think, I don't know if anyone has talked here about like uh, the valley of despair that founders go through. It's like this valley where like, I can't get out of bed. I don't know what's going to happen. I really believe in this. And then you kind of get up. Um, I believe the Valley of Despair for underrepresented founders fundraising is really hard. Anyone fundraising. I remember I was coming back from an event with a male uh, a friend of mine who's a, a founder. And he's like, I hate Sand Hill Road. I hate coming up here. <laughs> um, uh, it's, that's the experience that people just have. Um, I do believe that it's, it was hard. That there were many tears shed that I was telling that Ravi was one of our investors that actually gave us a bloodline to try to get more fundraising. But it always seems like it's, it's towards the end that you're like, okay, I give up, and then something keeps you going. Um, I remember a friend of mine emailed me, and she has a PhD, she uh, has a co-founder, her, uh, her CTO, and said, you're the trifecta of difficulty, like you're a solo, female Latina founder. Um, it, it was hard. Uh, I like to share this because I think it's important and it, people get shocked. Um, earlier this year I was at a board meeting and I started getting a headache and I was like this headache is weird um, and I was flying between New York and here and uh, and I, uh, the headache didn't go away in my we board meeting. It felt really weird and then uh, by Sunday, my board meeting was Friday. By s- Friday morning, Sunday, I was actually here at the ER here at Stanford, and I was diagnosed, uh, with, which we did not then, but with a benign tumor. And so I, about early about a couple of months ago, I actually wrote a blog post that says I survived Silicon Valley and brain surgery, and brain surgery was easier, <laughs> and it was um, nothing against uh, Stanford here, but I looked where were their best neurologist and specialist with what i get given, um, all this stuff. And I realized that, that I CEO'd myself out of that situation. <laughs> like very quickly got second opinion, like within, I got three opinions with a top neurologist within two days. Like I was texting, I was everything. My mom's like, why are you on your computer? Like here at the hospital. Um, but it, it, honestly, it was able to teach me um, that that if I hadn't been a founder, I don't know if I would have, I probably would have gone into despair mode when you are diagnosed with those things. Um, I just like, so yeah, I definitely do believe and uh, that um, being a CEO and a founder and an entrepreneur has shaped the way I interact with challenges every day. brain tumors are probably not everyday challenges. So but (laughs) you know, we're here. Anyone else? Yes. So I'm not a data person or a tech person um, but I'm curious like when companies are faced with the, the data that you provide them, how do they change kind of their, their core practices to be more inclusive? You talked a little bit about uh, culture shift being really challenging, um, do you think that that data helps to create some of that culture shift? Yeah. So the question is how, does, how do business leaders and companies actually react to the data and whether there's a shift in their behaviors. Um, it, it's different. Some people will focus only on one thing, like gender. Other people will want to see more detailed information, like our, our reporting tool is just like, literally, I pulled a report the other day for a client, I was like. This is way too much data, but here it is. Uh, like it goes so granular by source, by by location, like by event. How do they do it? it it's it depends where people want to take that step. But because we learn their behaviors as well over time, our recommendations are very different when they start off than when they're at six months um, into our client. Uh, I've seen I've had conversations with some of our clients, ex and current clients, around. Um, Getting their lawyers in earlier, in case there's something surface that we that our tool is not very capable of doing. Uh, But that we're very what I really like is to be empathetic in the approach. It's not like hey, you're doing this. I can't believe you. I can't believe what happened in the last three months. It's much more about like what are the tools that you need to change. Uh, We saw a lot of women withdraw in sales in an organization, and when we uh, actually dived in, we realized uh, that they were that the recruiters were putting in. Uh, compensation at the offer stage but men were actually asked compensation at the technical screen (laughs) so we said uh, you might just want to talk about compensation in just a set amount of inclusive Um, so talk about also questions like instead of saying hey we have free food come and work with us and look at our awesome food think about hey uh, we like to make sure that our employees are nourished Uh, That being said, we are also very responsible on food waste. (laughs) Uh, uh, There's a woman outside of Atlanta, Jasmine Crow, who's doing the gritter. Uh, She is actually, does all about food waste because it actually saves companies uh, millions of dollars through tax um, sort of breaks. And so think about all those inclusion components that are important to people nowadays, Um, definitely. Other things that we're seeing a lot of is um, employee activism. Uh, so now we're asking our, our clients to actually ask about what what are the things that, that are important to, to the candidates earlier on. One more. I think this young yeah, um, lady. You mentioned that like, you saw that the majority of bias wasn't coming from recruiters. So if you can you talk a little bit more about where that bias is coming from in the hiring process? Yes, definitely. So where are the biases coming on in the c- hiring process? And the tools so if anyone here either whether you're technical or not technical if there's a tool that people are giving you for example if you're uh, if you're applying for a business role they might use a tool like a spreadsheet or something like that but like that's not very there might be some biases in in the way that they present those numbers to different types of groups for technical uh, a lot of the tools, they, we, we tell them to audit the tools because that's where the bias is. It's the tools at the earlier stage and it's the people at the later stage, specifically hiring managers. So even when candidates get in and they interview in a panel, um, if the hiring manager uh, is asking questions that that are not very inclusive, we see uh, withdrawals and rejections at a higher rate. Um, it's Recruiters will do too, but uh, we also published a blog post about, um, again, in data engineering, uh, and I'll leave it with that, uh, women with more education and uh, the same experience as men were actually rejected at the application review. So we worked with those recruiters. And they, the reason that it wasn't malintention, the reason they were like, oh, they're too overqualified. Why do they want, don't want to work here? <laughs> I said, well, uh, you shouldn't make the decision. You should ask the candidates. please visit us at ecorner.stanford.edu.